It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, I was just telling someone, I got here in 2004, and uh, Chuck was the chair of the history department when I got here, and he recruited me. And um, coming here was actually one of the best decisions that I made in my life, and so I'm deeply appreciative. Um, I've thought about you a lot this semester as I teach labor history, and um, sometimes I go to class regretting it. Uh, when, when I got here and I decided to come here, Chuck asked me to teach labor history. And my dissertation had actually been on the Garvey movement in the South. And so I considered myself very much an African-American historian. I considered myself somewhat of an expert on black nationalism. And I sort of said, labor history? And Nelson Lichtenstein had actually taught that class. And um, I said, I don't know about that. <laughs> and um, as he can do, he convinced me to teach labor history, and it's just been one of the greatest um, pedagogical experiences that I've had here, but also intellectual experiences. Um, and now I look at my second book, and I have like three chapters on labor unions, and I say, ah, it must have worked. <laughs> uh, so thank you. Um, I just want to now introduce the panelists for the last session, Adjudicating Rights and Interests in a Changing Nation. And I will introduce them in the order that they will, uh, that they appear on your program as they appear. Uh, J. Herbie DeFonzo is a professor of law at Hofstra University. He is the author of Beneath the Fault Line, The Legal and Popular Culture of Divorce in 20th Century America, and the co-author with Ruth Stern of Intimate Associations, The Law and Culture of Families in 21st Century America. His essay is part of a project on the history of child custody and supplies a prelude to his From the Rule of One to Shared Parenting, Custody Presumptions in Law and Policy. Our next panelist is Richard Hamm. He is a professor of history at the State University of New York at Albany. His research interests focus on the interaction of law and society or the intersection of law and society in the American past. Professor Hamm is currently researching the National Women's Party efforts through constitutional litigation to make jury service for women a federal right. His publications include Murder, Honor, and Law for Virginia Homicides Between Reconstruction and the Great Depression and Shaping the 18th Amendment, Temperance Reform, Legal Culture, and the Polity 1880-1920. Next, we have uh, Rule Schiller who has this clip on YouTube that you just have to see talking about the humanities. Um, yeah, I'm a YouTube kind of fanatic, so, you know. Uh, just like, so he's like a celebrity me now, you know. So, um, Rule Schiller. You're saying it's your, your hit number 115. It was great. Uh, Rule Schiller is a professor of law and associate dean for research at the University of California, Hastings College of, the law, of law. His book, Forging Rivals, Race, Class, Law, and the Collapse of Postwar Liberalism, um, was recently published, just published in March, by Cambridge University Press. And last but certainly not least, we have Patricia 
Hagler Minter, who is an associate professor of history at Western Kentucky University. Her work on race relations and law has been published in numerous journals, including Law and History Review and Slavery and Abolition. She is also the co-author with Sally Haddon of Signpost New Directions in Southern Legal History, which was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2013. She currently serves on the board of directors for the American Society for Legal History and also on the board of directors of the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky. From 2007 to 2014, she was elected. Uh, she was the elected faculty regent on the WKU Board of Regents. And so, without any further delay, we will begin the panel. Thank you, Claudrina. Um, I am delighted to be here. Um, here, here's my Chuck story on the incredible extent of, of Chuck's range of interests. I've been listening to all of the panels today. None of you resemble mine. Um, I did my research on the history of divorce reform, and Chuck had no problem mentoring me, understanding the literature, guiding me, and I just thought that's an amazing feat, so I'm totally uh, blown away by that. Um, my project is on the child custody presumptions in 19th century America. Now, let me tell you how I got interested in, in, the, in the topic. I was the co-reporter for a national think tank on shared parenting. And the, the tough debates, these were judges, lawyers, mental health professionals, et cetera. The tough debate was on the issues of shared parenting and on a set of proposals that are making their way around, around the legislatures in this country called the 50-50 proposal bills, that parents, that we're going to make custody easy, 50-50 percent of parenting time, that's it, we're done. And um, the contemporary debates on this, uh, this is a very controversial issue. They argue that the, the argument in favor of these proposals, these presumptions, is that the best interest standard is too vague, too indeterminate, allows for judicial bias, uh, etc. So I wrote an article on, on custody uh, presumptions. I delved into the history and, and I realized I'm just not satisfied with what I wrote. It didn't sound right. The history I wrote sounded, this was kind of a first section of a law, law policy paper. It was just too simplistic. And here's what I wrote. Fathers won at common law. Mothers won under the Tender Years Doctrine. And then 150 years later, the legal system recognized that, oh my God, child custody has to do with children. And so we now turn to the best interest standard and discovered it and apply it. And moreover, presumptions are to be applied lockstep and without any judicial discretion. That's, a, that's in some ways the story that lawyers tell. It's the story I told, and it's really, really misleading. So this conference honoring Chuck McCurdy gives you an opportunity to make amends for some bad history. Um, when did the best interest standard emerge? And the answer to that is very definitive. It depends. If by best interest you mean <clears throat> a standard that focuses on the actual welfare of this child in this family and the court process that welcomes a social science forensic expert who will administer the 500-item Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory, then the best interest standard emerged a few years ago. But if you're talking about when courts began concerned with the welfare of children and put that at the center of their priority for child custody decisions, that answer is long before the 19th century. The difficulty here is that the late 20th and early 21st century courts view marriage as a joining together of two adults for the purposes of forming 
what I call a, 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 it's a form of intimate business partnership. Uh, when you break up, you break up. And cohabitation, as you probably know, is becoming the new normal. Despite the Supreme Court's welcoming every type of family to the altar, marriage is becoming less important. Um, contractual arrangements can replace a lot of what, of what marriage has done so far. But children remain unique. Child support and child custody have come more under the sway of the state, not less. Child support is subject to rather strictly enforced guidelines, and child custody battles take up an incredible percentage of the dockets of family courts. 19th century, family, uh, <clears throat> 19th century custody rules were premised on fairly conclusive legal presumptions that were gender-linked. I'll, I'll unpack that in a couple of minutes. But the major custody paradigms, whether they're father-centered or mother-centered, were aimed at the child's best interest. So let's, let's turn back to the 19th century and, and play that out. Now, the outlines of the lawyer's story in very loosely state and are, are correct. In, in the uh, 18th century, dad generally won, and mom eventually surpassed dad in the, the long 19th century. But that sketch is, is missing quite a few items. All custody decisions in the 19th century focused on rights stemming from the obligations of marriage. So in this context, it's significant to, to remember that child custody law developed in an age where there was no divorce. Um, when Lord Penzance famously wrote that marriage was the voluntary union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others for life, he meant it. Child custody doctrines arose in an, area in an age before divorce was judicially available, and so the precedents dealing with legal separation were later applied to absolute divorces. Dirk Hartog has, has written a lot in this, in this field. Well into the 18th century, legal codes assured fathers of absolute dominion over children and property, and they were basically the same. Courts dealing with marital breakup was concerned primarily with the allocation of material goods, so child custody doctrines evolved as a a portion of, or a subset of property rights. Uh, colonial Americans shifted this slightly into a quid pro quo between the father and the child, and the father was seen as the natural guardian. But let's get one thing clear. By recognizing the primacy of the father, 18th and 19th century courts were acting in what they deemed best for the child's welfare, having regard, as one English court put it, to the natural law, which points out that the father knows far better as a rule what is good for his children than a court of justice can. Father also knew what was best for mother, as one scholar put it, because the married woman, both physically and economically, was very much in the position of a chattel to her husband. Now, beginning in the late 18th century, English courts invoked the doctrine of parents patriae to sidestep or partially circumvent paternal supremacy and further the welfare of children. Courts insisted that father's rights were paramount, but they began considering a mother's child-rearing uh, and nurturing capabilities as a partial, temporary inroad into the dominant custody paradigm. 19th century courts were very reluctant to do that. An early um, 1809 South Carolina decision points out that uh, the, father, the husband had beaten his wife and committed adultery while the wife was, quote, a prudent, discreet, virtuous woman. There was a young daughter. They awarded her to the mother, but they said they were treading new and dangerous grounds in doing so. And insisting on paternal superiority as the dominant rule. Excuse me. 
Even while allowing exceptions in particular cases, American judges were clear on the evil that would undermine the family. That evil was, in the words of an 1858 um, decision in ex parte Hewitt, a divided empire in the government of a family, which is not consistent with the welfare of the wife and children and has not the sanction of the law. A divided empire in the government of the family. Let me spend a few minutes on this mid-century South Carolina appellate opinion, because I find it emblematic of the, the view that families needed to remain hierarchical for society to survive. The court began by condemning the argument that the parents were basically equal in rights as to the child and that the mother should obtain the, the, the custodial rights to a, a child of tender years because of her greater nurturing capability. The court said that is not the way to put it. In fact, they said this is not the language of the law, which looking to the peace and happiness of families and in the best interest of society places the husband and father at the head of the household. And when custody is an issue, <clears throat> the court added, we only follow the law in preferring the superior claim to the husband of the husband unless his custody should be inconsistent with the welfare of the children, which is a paramount consideration and will always regulate the discretion exercise in the disposition of them. Then they pointed out a list of things that the husband could do, truly horrible things the husband could do to, to temporarily uh, put aside his, his superior right. Now, there are many, many court uh, cases in the 19th century in which women, uh, mothers, obtained the rights to custody. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not denying that. My point is not that, but rather to redirect the focus of our, our inquiry from too quick an assumption <clears throat> That, and I know lawyers make this, historians don't, but uh, to a quick an assumption that once the tender years doctrine found its way into American legal culture, mothers automatically won. Tender years is not an indeterminate, excuse me, not an independent criterion, but rather it fit into the framework of Victorian marriage. Let's talk first about innocence in divorce. Custody was connected to marriage, it was fundamentally tied to the marriage equation. And thus, child custody was often, not always, but very often, awarded to the innocent party in the divorce. Now, what did that mean? It meant women often were the innocent parties, but when they were not, oh, brother, they were in trouble. Women's supposed moral superiority could lead to a harder fall from the pedestal when she violated her marital vows. There's a, a preeminent case in the Virginia Supreme Court in 1872, Carr versus Carr, that makes this point. Um, the court portrayed the husband as a stock Victorian villain and conduct reprehensible, et cetera, et cetera, but they far more criticized the wife because she had abandoned her vows in light of the beatings and taken her daughter with her, and the court condemned that. Tender years, let me just skim through so I can finish roughly on time. Tender years only meant temporary custody to mothers. Now, um, this is an obvious point. Children grow up, but and they leave their tender years, but somehow we often forget that, and yet the courts over and over in the 19th century pointed out that the tender years award was temporary, and there are many cases where the courts revisited the applications afterwards and said, okay, three years have passed, now the children go to the father at a very young age still. Um, okay, if best interest has always been the custody standard, what's changed? And what's changed in the, in the contemporary model is, is two connected things that I call the custody paradigm and the best interests assessment tool. 
The custody paradigm is that uh, courts considered marital obligations supreme and their violations despicable. That's the language in the case law. There is language in the case law about abuse of children and mistreatment of children, but killing the marriage was universally viewed as grievously wounding the children of the marriage. The party, to use that phrase again, that had created the divided empire in the government of the family was made to pay uh, dearly. Moreover, courts had a horror of opening up the curtain and looking into what one court called the penetralia of the party's connubial life. That was considered off limits to much of the court. Um, when they looked at mothers, they did not consider the individual woman and the individual family. They looked at mothers as a, as a generic category. Second point, the lack of best interest assessment tools. Today, a court calls upon forensic science, uh, forensic psychologists, experts in family dynamics, psychometric uh, testing. That profession did not exist in the 19th century. Only late in the century do we see inroads in social science, independency and delinquency cases. These are the child savers, supposed child savers movement uh, dealing with the state's impact primarily on poor families, not custody cases. Child custody cases did not, child custody experts did not come in, into, into being until the legal system turned away uh, from these presumptions. Okay, so let me conclude with a little, a little bit, of, a few, couple of minutes here. To resort to a legal presumption is to use a proxy. Rather than the proven existence of a fact from scratch, the law sometimes allows you to establish one fact and then infer another. 19th century custody presumptions relied on various proxies to establish the best interest of the child. Fault in the parental and spousal separation, a parent's gender, those were viewed as proxies. Uh, and late in the 20th century, we attempted to move away from proxy fights and move to the best interest taken generically, uh, not generically, taken realistically and accurately without a substitution of a gendered or another proxy fight. But one of the strengths of proxies is relative certainty. By moving away from proxies, we move into the miasma of total argumentation, a battle of experts, um, et cetera, and the best interest standard as allowing the judges to basically decide these cases subjectively. Now in the 21st century, there's a movement to bring back some custody presumptions. I've mentioned the 50-50 presumption. And some have argued, um, I have argued too, that this would create a best interest of the parent standard. The lesson from history, though, shows that we should be skeptical of the argument that presumptions will control the courts and that presumptions will lead to a, uh, a definitive des uh, a definitive set of cases decided in a particular way according to the presumptions. I think we need to be skeptical about that because the history shows it's a far more nuanced and sensitive to social norm um, version of history. But that is a story for another day. Thank you very much. staying so late. Uh, it's, it's nice to see so many people still here. Um, this, this talk on challenging the segregated draft during World War II, the Lynn case, and racial activism grew out of an attempted biography I was going to write on Arthur Garfield Hayes. Um, and 
you know, I was following in my mentor's footsteps. I was going to write a biography. I followed a little too closely. I didn't write a biography. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but more shocking than that, when I told Chuck about this particular topic, this particular case, he said, it was in, it was in 2013, I never heard of it. And I was shocked. Um, and you should be shocked. Um, actually, you shouldn't be shocked because it's not a very important case. And in fact, my whole, much of my career has been looking at not very important cases to find hidden meanings in them. And so this case, which, yeah, go, it, it's appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, but they don't take it, tells us something about racial activism during World War II. So, Winfred Lynn. When he got his draft notice, said, you are 1A, he wrote to the draft board. And he said, I don't want to be inducted into a, a segregated military. And I am invoking the anti-discrimination clause of the Selective Service Act of 1940. And if I am not drafted into an integrated military, then I'm not going to serve. The Lynn case will show, first, the difficulties of challenging segregation during World War II, the divisions in the ranks of those who are opposed to military segregation, and if I have time, it will show the paths out of it. If not, you can ask me afterwards, and the last five minutes of this paper just disappear, which is fine. So uh, at the time of American entry into World War II, military policy was to maintain segregation and white supremacy. African Americans would be recruited in numbers representative to their percentage of the population, but they would serve only in segregated units and in some cases non-combat units. Elite services like the Marines and the Air Force were barred to them. They were consigned to non-combat roles often. The determination that African Americans would never command white troops makes it clear this was a white supremacist order. Winfred Lynn was one of those black Americans who saw this happening and like many others, this is a germ of a movement, it doesn't go very far uh, for, for various reasons. He's a 36-year-old man. He's working as a landscape gardener on Long Island. He's living in Jamaica, in Queens. It's a vibrant African-American community that's had a long history of resisting segregation. And he's serious. So when he gets his draft notice, he doesn't report. And in September of 1942, he is arrested as a draft delinquent. So you have here a, a man who says, I got a legal challenge to the segregated draft, and civil liberties unions, NAACP, doesn't pick up the ball. So we'll come to that in a second. Why does no, the, the Act of 1940 has an anti-discrimination clause? It says, in the selection and training of men under this act, there shall be no discrimination against any person on account of race or color. Now, while some might have interpreted the language to mean no segregation, Winfred Lynn did, in the course of the debate over it, Southern congressmen made it clear that they did not think that this clause would mean the end of segregation. 
Indeed, the anti-discrimination clause was followed by other language. They, uh, they read in part that no man would be taken to the military unless he was acceptable to, in the land or naval forces for such training, and no man shall be inducted for such training until adequate provision shall be made for their shelter. The War Department used this general language in the act to limit the anti-discrimination clause's effect by interpreting the non-discrimination clause to mean separate but equal in training and conscription. Draft boards with sizable African-American populations in their districts kept separate lists for whites and African-Americans out of necessity because the separate training facilities might not be ready for one race or the other. Despite the attraction of challenging this system that seems contrary to the text of the language, Lynn's case after his arrest stalls. It's being, he's being represented by his brother, Conrad Lynn, who's a lawyer. Conrad Lynn has sought a writ of habeas corpus, questioning why the government holds his brother in, in custody. At the habeas corpus hearing, Arthur Garfield Hayes, a mainstay of the ACLU, though freelancing here, a sporadic supporter of African-American rights, showed up to help represent Lynn. He showed up to a circus. At the hearing, federal district judge Mortimer Byers called the case, moved it to the first thing in the docket, called the case, refused to recognize Hayes, and declared, quote, I have before me a petition for a writ, the writ of habeas corpus, the return to the writ, writ dismissed, next case. Hayes engaged in argument, contempt of court argument, I guess. Um, he ignored the judge repeating that the matter was closed, there was no argument would be permitted, and launched into a stump speech on the issues behind the case. <clears throat> Hayes said he thought we were sending soldiers into battle against a Nazi Superman philosophy because we were committed to the proposition that all men were created equal. In an exchange between ju the judge and Hayes, Byers said that since Lynn had not submitted induction and he had not suffered discrimination, prompting Hayes to ask, whoa, 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 if he gets inducted, would that be different? And he got the idea that he would. And so he goes over and he confers with Lynn, with his brother, and Winford Lynn decides that he will be inducted on the advice of counsel so he can make a legal test case against military segregation. This decision will send him to the South Pacific in the Chemical Weapons uh, Corps and also to the U.S. Supreme Court. So why Hayes? Why not the NAACP? Why not the ACLU? The case was difficult for the NAACP because when it comes, it comes in late 1942, and African Americans had made significant gains in the military utilizing their electoral importance to have reluctant political leaders trump the military command. Segregation remained the norm in the military, but African Americans had gained ground. That, that makes this challenge to segregated draft look unpatriotic. It also looks kind of like shirking <clears throat> in a period when there are, there are riots in American cities over race relations. There's been progress in the creation of the FEPC, and so this looks like an out-of-step move. It's also troubling for the NAACP because Conrad Lynn is involved, 
and Conrad Lynn is a Marxist, a former communist, and he lives with a white woman, and he, to the NAACP, is too hot to handle. It also is contrary to the double V campaign. You know, African Americans had, you know, put on this cloak of patriotic penumbra of victory at home and victory overseas, which required African Americans to serve and fight, and there's Lynn saying, I won't serve. But it was not a safe course for the NAACP, which was growing during the war years, to allow this to go to somebody else to promote. And thus, behind the scenes, they're backing Hayes and the ACLU to take this. They let Hayes, and to a limited extent the ACLU, because the ACLU is very hesitant in the early years of the war too, to do this so others in the African American and race liberal circles won't take the case. So Hayes and Conrad Lynn take the case alone, and their first step is to seek a new habeas corpus. And they go back to the judge who refuses to see Conrad Lynn or give the habeas corpus. And so Conrad Lynn and Hayes confer, they leak this to the press, they find another judge who will give the writ, and they get the, and Lynn personally, Conrad Lynn personally serves it on his brother's colonel. The hearing was set for the last month of 1942. Hayes and Lynn appeared for Winfred Lynn against lawyers from the Justice Department and the Judge Advocate General's Corps. Judge Campbell quickly dismissed the suit. Hayes writes to the ACLU after this quick, uh, quiz, quick hearing, so you know, one day little hearing, um, that they had established some very useful facts. The men were chosen not serially, but in order, but to some extent because of their color. The local draft board in Jamaica, following the policy of the Selective Service, called up 90 white men and 50 Negroes, noting their color instead of choosing the first 140 men who were eligible. The Selective Service law particularly provides that there should be no discrimination for against men because of their color. But the court took the position that we had not shown that Lynn had suffered any damage. I, Hayes says, took the position that the theory of government was that it was a privilege to serve and that there was discrimination where men were chosen out of their turn, which selection somewhat upon color. He concluded the case should be appealed and asked for $300 from the ACLU to support the appeal. The governing board agreed despite the fact that no one thought there was a chance of success in a higher court. But they felt the educational effort would be worth the investment. So, in the words of Dwight McDonald, who becomes involved in this case, excuse me, I hate technology. Hayes and Lynn carry this alone. And they carry it for a committee that is formed, the National Citizens Committee for Winford Lynn. It's a predictable alliance of lefties and African Americans. Most significantly in it is A. Philip Randolph. And they're bringing a test case. And they bring the test case in the Second Circuit. And they have this wonderful brief that Lynn had been inducted through a use of a racial quota. Um, and they lose. The Court of Appeals, in a two to three, two to one decision uh, in February 1944, admitted, yep, he was admitted as a, a member of a Negro quota, but the court denied that Lynn had, Lynn had suffered any harm being drafted in this matter. Indeed, Lynn, Lynn had benefited because he was probably in, inducted later. 
The majority opinion justified the practice of the segregated draft by reading the legislative history in light of the segregated military. And they said if the Congress had wanted to ban the segregated draft, they could have been clearer. Judge Charles Clark dissented. He read the legislative intent of Congress in adopting the anti-discrimination clause for much deeper. And he said, look, the record shows the very clauses the military says are here to keep it as a segregated training and draft. No, those are just general clauses. And on its very face, this seems to ban the practice of a divided draft. And he says, this, what do you mean that he benefited? No, come on, it's a privilege to serve. He's not benefiting. It's unpatriotic, it's unsound, and contrary to the spirit of the act. And Clark turned separate but equal against the government, asserting the doctrine required equal calls to service. So you have a divided course, divided Second Circuit. You have a chance for an appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. And now, later, 1944, many African Americans are thinking this is a good idea because expectations have risen. They want, they've gotten some, and rightly, they want more. And you have favorable publicity being generated, and it, the Lynn case is being known in some circles as the 20th century Dred Scott. I'm in real time trouble, people. But that's okay. <laughs> I will adjust. Now, the, what's really nice about this is, you know, the NAACP is now on board. It writes an amici curi beef after Ed reads Conrad Hayes, uh, Conrad um, Codron Wynn, and Hayes and, and, and Lynn's brief. So there's a, two complimentary briefs out there, which I'm not going to tell you anything about, because they don't really matter, because the Supreme Court dodges the issue in the most cheap way possible. It's not willing to, it refuses to grant certiorari on the grounds that the cause is moot, it appearing that the petitioner is no longer in the respondent's custody, because Winfred Lynn had been sent overseas, and he's not reporting to Colonel Downer. This is I, I don't have a nice word for this. I mean, Winford Lynn had been sent overseas before the circuit court opinion. So the, the court is dodging, and everybody knows the court is dodging. Now, what happens as a re result of this is interesting. The Lynn committee says, oh my God, we're going we're to change. We're going to become the committee to end racial discrimination in the military. And they rename themselves the Lynn committee to abolish segregation in the armed forces. And they begin to try to push to end segregation in the military. Lynn, when he is discharged, joins that committee and participates a little bit in its actions. Now, all the activists who were involved in this take different paths out of this. McDonald, Hayes, Conrad Lynn, um, even Winfred Lynn. I don't have time to talk about that. So let me, let me conclude very quickly, though, on what this does kind of mean in, in thinking about the challenging segregation in the era of World War II. First of all, it shows that mobilizing actions against racial barriers was difficult. It was hampered by hesitancy and internal divisions by the groups who opposed segregation. If Lynn had first not been represented by his brother, and if Hayes had not decided to act as an independent agent, the case would have died in district court, if not before. 
Second, the changed circumstances created by the war, the opening of the elite services to African Americans, amongst other things, creation of the FEPC, meant that no civil rights organization could afford not to be involved. So the NAACP, which was a go away in 1942, are, we're one with you, brother, in 1944 and beyond. And then, though I haven't showed, told you one bit about it, just trust me on this, there were different tactical lessons taken from the case. Activists embraced different tactics after the case. McDonald went for education. Hayes continued his ideas of litigation with publicity on the side. Conrad Lynn went towards civil disobedience. And A. Philip Randolph went to politics and, again, direct confrontation by trying to set up a, basically when the draft comes back in 1947, 48, as it's coming back, he wants to set up a league of conscientious objectors to a segregated military, inducing thousands of men to do as Winford Lynn did, not be inducted to a segregated military. So thank you. Well, this is the, the second time in this weekend that I'm, I'm going almost last. Um, the penultimate speaker, it was true at, at the ASLH, um, and there, there are a number of disadvantages uh, to being in this position, uh, not the least of which is audience fatigue. Um, but the other is the problem of repetition, um, at, at, because there's a certain repetition among the various students of Chuck and sort of how he shaped us, what different sort of lessons that we've learned from him um, that have made it into our work, you know, and actually sort of cataloging some of the ones that have been sort of mentioned over the course of, of today and, and previously, you know, the relative autonomy of law, the use of unexpressed pre uh, premises in the, in the minds of legal actors, uh, interaction between law, politics, and society, uh, the relationship between local and national uh, political and legal institutions, that kind of unique McCurdian combination of law and society and sort of intellectual history or formal legal thought. Um, and, and it's true, really, as I heard sort of all of those things, I, I realized that I actually can't really imagine any of my own work um, without my sort of feeble attempts to incorporate those ideas into the work um, that I've done. Um, the, the other thing I think that we've seen repeatedly or we've heard repeatedly is an issue that I think sort of straddles the border between historiography and technique. Um, and, and the way I, I guess I would characterize this is as follows. Um, I've always wondered why when, since the very sort of first day of graduate school up until um, actually, as I'll explain in a second, just earlier this year, um, uh, that whenever I hear or read one of Chuck's narratives, they always seem particularly convincing to me. Um, I come away with that, oh, right, right, that is the definitive answer to that historical question, uh, despite the fact that you know, I've been to graduate school and Chuck taught me and everybody taught me, right, that, well, a definitive answer, you probably don't want to sort of say stuff like that <laughs> or even think stuff like that as you're trying to produce history. Um, and I, what I draw from that is the, the, again, the sort of thing that is 
sits on the border of historiography and technique there, um, is that, that I think the lesson that, uh, a lesson that we might take from Chuck's work um, is really to approach historical problems um, with the sort of lodestone phrase, um, it's more complicated than you think, <laughs> right? Laissez-faire constitutionalism isn't just elites bending the judiciary to their will. Uh, the failure of the anti-rent movement isn't because of, you know, the power of feudal landholders in New York State. Um, just last year, I had the pleasure of hearing uh, Chuck deliver the Jefferson Memorial Lecture at UC Berkeley, um, and, and he used that lecture to explain um, why, in fact, um, if you look at the uh, Federalist view of the Alien and Seditions Act, it seems quite, quite logical, consistent, and perfectly plausible, and all that stuff that Justice Brennan said in the 1960s, maybe, but maybe not um, as well. Um, in each case, what, what Chuck does is dismantle the kind of Manichaean vision of historical events, right? The good guys, bad guys, the, the black and white, um, and by inserting shades of gray, by digging deep into legal and social context to reveal complexity, right? And of course, one would hope that any historian would advise this. Um, but it's the, the perfection with which Chuck does this that I think has made him really the best sort of imaginable model um, for those of us uh, who have studied with him. Um, so, so now <laughs> I get to do a laughably small and feeble version of this, um, which will most certainly not live up to the standard. Um, but I wanted to at least go through the exercise of it, whether you find it convincing or not, to, to I hope illustrate a little bit um, about what, um, what we learned um, from, from Chuck McCurdy. Um, and my version of it actually, like Richard's, um, involves a case um, that, that actually I'm sure almost nobody has heard of. Um, it's a case called Banks versus Housing Authority. Um, it's a, a civil rights case from, from California. It didn't even make it all the way up uh, to, the, to the highest courts in California. Um, uh, it's from 1952. Um, and I guess what I'd like to do is I'd like to do the, the standard narrative um, and then do a and I, I had written in my notes that sort of McCurdy narrative, but I actually don't quite want to say that because it's a Schiller narrative that attempts to emulate McCurdy and it will be lame and far short of, of no doubt what he would have done with this. Um, so here's the conventional narrative though. Um, towards the end of the 1930s, uh, Congress passes the, the Federal Housing Act, right? And many localities respond by creating housing authorities and San Francisco, California does that as well. Um, and they start building public housing, right? And so this is in the late 1930s and the early 1940s. Um, and the, the public housing that is built in San Francisco um, is built for whites only at first. Um, uh, 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 it's uh, de, 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 de facto segregated. They don't actually sort of have language in there that segregates the housing. Um, but it just so happens that only white people are invited and allowed into this housing. Um, then, during World War II um, in San Francisco, there's a massive influx of African Americans um, to the West Coast and into San Francisco uh, in particular. Um, and, and what happens is this, the San Francisco Housing Authority um, builds a segregated housing project for African Americans in the Western Edition, which is one of the main African American neighborhoods in the city. Um, at the same time that they do that, they, they actually move from the de facto segregation to a de jure segregation regime. Um, the the uh, Housing Authority promulgates something called the Neighborhood Pattern Policy. Um, and what the Neighborhood Pattern Policy says is that as the Housing Authority builds new housing projects, it will, quote, 
preserve the racial composition of the neighborhood in which the project is located, right? So after the war, when they begin building more housing projects, um, they build one in Chinatown, that is gonna be for Chinese Americans. They build one in the Bayview neighborhood, which will be another project for African Americans. Um, and then, uh, believe it or not, they, they build one in North Beach, um, which they, they say distinctly is gonna be for Italian Americans, right? Um, now, this is a room full of legal historians, so I think you all know where this is going. Um, in 1952, the NAACP sues uh, the San Francisco Housing Authority um, after it refuses to admit an African-American woman, Maddie Banks, um, to the newly constructed Italian-American housing project um, that is being built in North Beach. Um, now, again, this crowd certainly knows that at the beginning of the 1950s, we're in a doctrinally a pretty interesting place. Um, separate but equal is teetering on the edge, but is not, but is still good law. Um, the NAACP has started the sort of campaign that is, becomes Brown versus Board of Education, or the litigation that becomes it, and has decided to uh, challenge Brown, uh, separate but equal head on. Um, and the San Francisco branch of the NAACP uh, decides they're going to do the same thing in the Banks case. Right? Um, and so they make this challenge that separate but equal is no longer good law, and so the neighborhood pattern policy should be held unconstitutional. Um, for the doctrine geeks in the room, they also make a couple of other um, arguments in the alternative. Um, uh, one is that maybe separate but equal is okay in most areas, but it shouldn't apply in property. Right, because we have Shelley versus Kramer, um, we have uh, Buchanan versus Worley, and so public housing should be treated like that as well. Um, and then they make an argument uh, based on California public policy that they had had some success with in the Marin ship case. Um, um, but it's a, a very robust um, uh, legal argument. Um, and naturally, the, the San Francisco Housing Authority gives their program a, a full-throated defense. Um, and their defense is, is really interesting. I mean, this, this reminds me of something that was said on the last panel about when you want to look for the, whether the law is fragile or not, is when you look and you hear one of these arguments on one side that seem just utterly implausible or ridiculous, it means that you, you might be on to something, right? It's a place to dig down. Um, the, the San Francisco Housing Authority um, tries to defend the neighborhood pattern policy um, in arguing that it promotes post-war pluralism rather than hindering it, right? It says, look, we have a scarce public housing resource. We want to be sure that it's distributed equitably in a very diverse community, um, right? So that's one reason we need it. Another reason we need it is, of course, everybody knows that San Francisco is known for its charm and that charm is dependent on having culturally homogenous neighborhoods like Chinatown and North Beach. Um, both tourists and locals enjoy that sort of feeling in the city. Um, and finally, they argue um, that the people in the neighborhoods um, have a preference for retaining the homogeneity of their neighborhood for both social and economic reasons. Um, now, again, if you look at the timing here in the 50s and you have an idea of some of the folks who are on the, uh, uh, in the California judiciary at this time, um, it's, it's not surprising that the California courts are actually not are not very patient with these arguments. Um, uh, they're not willing to overturn Plessy. Um, but they do invalidate the neighborhood pattern policy. Um, the trial court likes that argument about how Shelley and Buchanan suggest that we should sort of preserve some parts of separate but equal, but in the area of property law, um, we should get rid of it. Um, the appellate courts accept that argument, 
Um, they, they also accept the California public policy argument, um, and they point out that, in fact, the San Francisco Housing Authority isn't even meeting the separate but equal standard if it was still good law. Um, now, if we were to stop the narrative there, right, then what you get is that Banks is a small and, and frankly, pretty interesting footnote in that kind of Plessy to Brown narrative. Right, and it's easy to see the San Francisco Housing Authority, um, particularly in, in light of a lot of the newer civil rights historiography about Jim Crow in the North and, and how segregation is a, and, and, and Jim Crow is a national uh, institution. Um, however, um, let, let's follow McCurdy for a second here and dig down into the political and legal context um, of this case a little more in a little more detail. Try to restruct, uh, reconstruct the contextual framework. Um, and Chuck would always, to me at least, he would always use this word lens, sort of see it through the lens um, of, of the actors who were involved in it. Um, and of course it turns out if you do dig down, it's much more complicated than you think. Um, it gets messy. Um, because it turns out that the definition of racial equality um, is, is much more fluid in post-war San Francisco, I think, than the traditional narrative suggests. Um, and it, particularly when you dig down to make the civil rights narrative multiracial, um, things get a good deal more complicated. Right? Um, prior to World War II, um, uh, the African-American population in San Francisco was tiny. Um, far and away, the largest um, group of color were Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants, um, Chinese nationals living in, in the city. Um, they were, of course, um, a, a reviled community um, within California, discriminated against in employment, in housing, and public accommodations, facing hostility from police and public health officials, violence from bigoted demagogues, uh, stoking white fears of competition for jobs, hemmed into Chinatown's crowded substandard housing. Um, by the end of World War II, though, there's been a, a dramatic change in the image and fortunes um, of the Chinese community in San Francisco. Um, uh, during the war, wartime propaganda sort of portrayed the Chinese, of course, as heroic resistors of Japanese aggression. Um, and in the post-war period, um, most of those Chinese and Chinese Americans uh, living in San Francisco were, of course, staunch anti-communist supporters of the Kuomintang. Um, and again, sort of the propaganda at the time portrayed them as the forefront um, uh, at the forefront of the anti-communist struggle against Red China. Um, this led to a dramatic decline in anti-Chinese sentiment, um, but also it led to tangible benefits for the Chinese community in San Francisco, and two are of particular note to our story. Um, the first is the appointment of the Chinese-American businessman named Charles Jung to the San Francisco Housing Authority. Um, the first non-white member of sort of any organ of San Francisco city government. Um, and the second um, was the building of the Pingyuan Public Housing Project in Chinatown that, that I had referred to earlier. And the building of Pingyuan is particularly significant. Right? Chinatown was chronically overcrowded, the housing was notoriously bad, and Pingyuan was 234 modern units and three brand new buildings built right in the middle of Chinatown with Chinese architectural motifs and colors, quotes from Lao Tzu over the entrances. Um, um, and not only were the apartments under the neighborhood planning policy reserved, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> reserved um, for the residents of Chinatown, um, but the San Francisco Housing Authority actually delegated to Chinese community leaders the job of picking out who would be um, in these apartments. 
Um, thus, for Chinatown's residents, um, this housing was not only housing, um, it was also a manifestation of the new their new political power in the city, a seat at the table for a racial group that had been universally despised uh, a decade earlier. Um, that being the case, you can imagine that their response to the bank's case was not enthusiastic, right? Community organizations um, endorsed the neighborhood pattern policy. Um, the housing authority and member Zheng, of course, voted to uphold it. The Chinese community did not support the litigation. Um, at community meetings, they were openly hostile to it. The Chinese language newspapers in the city followed the litigation with this impending sense of dread. Um, and as multiracial um, organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League and the Council for Civi Civic Unity um, tried to sort of win over Chinatown's leaders, um, uh, what they found is they had uh, almost no luck, right? Um, because the arguments that they would make were simply unconvincing, right? The argument that, for example, well, there would actually be more housing um, for, for Chinese Americans if you had a, a desegregated system in its entirety Right, it was very unconvincing because monolingual Chinese speakers who worked in Chinatown because of employment discrimination rather than anywhere else did not want to be put in a housing project in Visitation Valley or out in the Richmond district. I mean, it was perplexing um, because the current arrangement, the neighborhood planning, did not seem inegalitarian to them. Right? To the contrary, Ping Yuan was an enormous civil rights triumph to them the result of a political system that now finally listened to them um, after decades and decades of discrimination. Um, and indeed, when they looked at what was happening within the African-American community, um, and actually, Richard, your paper talks about this sort of for the initial reactions to, to how you're supposed to feel about the draft, um, the Chinese community looked at the housing project in the Western edition and thought, well, you got your housing project and now we're getting our housing project? Like that's the way things are supposed to work. Right, and I'm, I'm concluding, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going long, I usually don't go long. Um, uh, what, what happened was that civil rights strategies for the African American community and the Chinese American community, community just by the 1950s were different and at odds with one another. Um, so what appeared to the city's African-American community and their white supporters to be an endorsement of a racist legal doctrine of separate but equal seemed to the Chinese-American community to be a civil rights victory, right? It was an assertion of a strong preference based on a variety of, of factors, including absolutely you know, anti-black racism within the Chinese-American community, but also political, economic, and linguistic cultural reality of living within San Francisco's Chinatown. Um, so I don't know um, if you're convinced of the existence of this sort of bona fide, different lens, different conceptual framework through which um, the Chinese American community viewed a definition of racial egalitarianism. Right? I don't know, I'm sure you're not convinced in the same way that Chuck convinced us of how the Federalists viewed the Alien and Sedition Act, or how Justice Field viewed the distinction between public and private, or, or Gilded Age judges view their view of freedom of contract. Um, but, but I hope I've tried, as I, I hope I've done through my entire career, uh, to emulate Chuck, right, to question the simple answers, to dig down into the thick context, to create a narrative that reflects the complexity of lived historical experience. Thank you.
I get to close it out. And to, uh, to begin the closing, uh, let me take the uh, prerogative of going last by saying that I hope you have enjoyed the work today that shows what the essays will look like in Federalism Reconsidered, uh, which is a fitting tribute to not only to our mentor and his legacy, but also as all of our discussions over the last couple days have pointed to, it's, it's a fitting tribute to the intellectual community that he has created, of which we are now all a part, and we have much to pay forward. So to begin the close, let me start with the nation's most famous county court clerk. Uh, when Kim Davis announced in Rowan County, Kentucky on September the 3rd of this year that she would go to jail in contempt of court rather than comply with a federal judge's order to issue marriage licenses to both same-sex and opposite-sex couples in her Eastern Kentucky office, she continued a story that began 11 years earlier. As she tearfully stated her belief that, quote, marriage is between one man and one woman, she repeated the rallying cry that had appeared on yard signs, billboards, and leaflets throughout the state in 2004, when Kentucky was one of several states to place a so-called marriage amendment on the ballot for November's general election. Drafted in reaction to the legalization of same-sex marriage in several localities across America, these ballot referenda passed overwhelmingly and validated the conservative strategy to use what one scholar termed the red herring of marriage to enforce gender norms. Widely acknowledged at the time as part of the 2004 Republican strategy to nationalize the issue by promoting such ballot initiatives, and they amended the constitutions of 13 states in order to enrage their conservative religious base and get out the vote for George W. Bush. Um, it has been argued that these amendments, particularly one in Ohio, provided the slim margin of victory. But really, seriously, nobody thought that conservative-identified Kentucky was actually an electoral play. So what happened? Why did Kentucky draft this marriage amendment? Why was it framed, and what factors led to its passage by overwhelming margin? And beyond the obvious desire to constitutionalize discrimination, how did competing versions of rights enter into the discourse? Many Kentuckians argued this same-sex marriage and by inference, civil rights protections for homosexuals in employment, benefits, housing, and parental rights not only were not civil rights, but more urgently argued that recognition of them caused harm to the institution of marriage itself. And this raised the question for me, how did the theological debate over the legitimacy of same-sex marriage, both as religious sacrament and as a civil institution, reflect interdenominational struggles, and how did these differences play out in the Kentucky debate? And Kentucky is actually a great place to study this, with its large urban Catholic communities near the Ohio River, with a sea of evangelical Protestants covering the rural areas south of the river. So this provides an interesting case study. Well, the crusade in Kentucky began in 1998, and it was based on three things, Hawaiian case law, which uh, from 1993, secondly, a statewide campaign for fairness ordinances that passed uh, anti-discrimination laws in Lexington and Louisville, and thirdly, Vermont's civil union law. Well aware that the U.S. Constitution's full faith and credit clause could well mandate the acceptance of civil unions performed in Vermont, 
Kentucky's General Assembly overwhelmingly passed a law that sanctioned Kentucky's refusal to, to recognize same-sex marriages in other states, prohibited it from san sanctioning such unions, and refused recognition to any same-sex marriages of one or more Kentucky citizens performed elsewhere. And in what became a dress rehearsal for the 2004 uh, debate, University of Louisville law professor Sam Markison testified to no avail in the House Judiciary Committee that not only did such a bill threaten to enmesh Kentucky in costly litigation if the Federal Defense of Marriage Act were invalidated, but it was also, quote, costly, unfair, and ultimately an unconstitutional attempt to formally write inequality into the law of Kentucky. By 2004, conservative religious activists in the Bluegrass State believed the statutory protection was no longer enough. Earlier that year, the push to constitutionalize the prohibition on same-sex marriage began in the General Assembly, and the key players were conservative Christian activists. And the deep pocket that kicked the whole thing off belonged to Dr. Frank Simon. Dr. Simon is a Louisville allergist, a fundamentalist Christian who self-finances the American Family Association, which is connected to some degree to an organization in Mississippi. He spends, and spends is the word, large portions of his fortune on robocallings and mass mailings, and he funded most of the organized opposition to the fairness ordinances in Louisville in 1999 and attempted to stop them elsewhere. He had a lot of help. Lobbying help came from the Family Foundation, a self-described Lexington pro-family group, and it also came from Louisville Southeast Baptist Theological Seminary. Once a bastion of moderation in the region's largest denomination, the seminary had moved rightward during the 1990s and gained notoriety by purging female faculty and non-fundamentalist moderates. And they now turned their gaze towards something they defined as the most pressing secular threat to godliness in the Commonwealth, same-sex marriage. Kentucky became the fourth state to send a marriage amendment to voters when on April 13, 2004, the Senate passed the amendment overwhelmingly, 33 to 5. The House passed it the next day, 85 to 11. Republican Governor Ernie Fletcher, a former Baptist minister, eagerly signed the law that put the initiative on the November ballot. The Family Foundation's Kent Ostrander openly rejoiced in the mainstream press the day after passage, proclaiming that the goal was not to ban same-sex marriage, to use his quotations, but to protect marriage from any kind of redefinition. He argued that traditional marriage, not same-sex marriage, offered children true diversity. He said, quote, we've not been out to target gays and lesbians. They offer children sameness. And it reduces the word diversity to simply a campaign slogan designed to persuade adults to tolerate their practices. We believe a child needs to have every opportunity to have both a mother and a father. That's true diversity. An amendment would also provide protection against state court rulings, such as 2003's Massachusetts High Court issuing its controversial ruling that legalized same-sex marriage. Now, what's interesting about Ostrander is that his rhetoric on the, in the Family Foundation's newsletter to its supporters was very different than what he said in the mainstream press. There, he starts with the real root of the problem, 
the free love of the 1960s and 70s. And he charged that, quote, the same people who brought us that message are far more militant because they're not just offering ideas, they're demanding the force of government be used to impose their values upon everyone else. And then he upped the ante, arguing, quote, this is the most important issue Kentucky encountered during this generation. And this is emphasized. Marriage is the foundation of the family, and the family is the foundation of society, any society. He then asked what would happen uh, to traditional gender roles, quote, if two men can effectively raise a young girl, then we've redefined and rendered useless the words wife and mother. He raised similar alarms about how young men learn to be masculine if raised by two women. Quote, how can he become a man's man, a loving husband, or a good father if he's never seen any of these roles demonstrated? And to close, Ostrander urged Kentuckians to take a stand for marriage, lest they allow mayors in San Francisco or judges in Massachusetts to, quote, erode what has made this nation great. If we do not stand and win this cultural batter, battle, we can begin to write the history of the demise of our nation. So what's missing from this? Well, any mention of religion. Speaking to the evangelical conservative faithful who funded Family Foundation, it was not the sacrament of marriage which was under attack. It was patriarchy, the foundation of their vision of what family was. Now, as the battle heated up, in late spring and summer of 2004, the key players in public were evangelicals, not only churches, but the Southern Baptist Seminary got involved. President Dr. Albert Moeller Jr. drew clear lines on biblical truth and the evils of liberal and moderate theology, and then laid out the key argument that defined the fundamentalist position not only on same-sex marriage, but on the tolerance of homosexuality itself in American society. Quote, the affirmation of biblical authority is thus central to the church's consideration of this issue or any issue. The Bible is the word of God in written form inerrant and infallible, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So for Moeller and other fundamentalist Christians then, this was at root an issue not only of definition, but also of survival of the true church. He said, quote, this is the critical watershed. Those churches that reject the authority of scripture eventually will succumb to cultural pressure and accommodate their understanding of homosexuality to the spirit of the age. Having now condemned the liberals and the moderates, he then laid his version down of the word, quote, homosexual acts are expressly and unconditionally forbidden by God through his word. These are the Bible's words. Now, Catholic objections in the Kentucky discussion, while certainly expressing concern, uh, had a completely different emphasis. As opposed to the culture war language and cries of threats to their, of their definitions of family, Kentucky's conservative Catholic community emphasized instead the decline of sacramental marriage as a threat to society. Archbishop Joseph Kurtz, whose Louisville area diocese is the largest in Kentucky, led the efforts of the Catholic Church in the United States to prevent same-sex marriage, and he gave the, the uh, story to the faithful in 2004. Now, polling data does not exist to show how many Kentucky Catholics voted for the marriage amendment. And a survey of newspapers shows that Kurtz did not participate in the public discourse in the same way the evangelical Protestants did. He wrote no editorials. 
He funded no yard signs nor media buys, but his message was well known to, uh, to his faithful. He echoed some of the themes that the conservative Protestants used, quote, that marriage has been under assault for decades by secularists, by feminists, and others who see it as a social construction easily morphed into new shapes or ignored altogether. But Kurtz's statements uh, differed significantly from other religious opponents in several ways. Answering charges that the church was actively working against civil rights, Kurtz emphasized that the church opposed discrimination and poor treatment of homosexuals. He said, quote, the church truly desires to be a defender of human rights. And while he admitted that many Americans do not share Catholic doctrine on marriage, he believed that the church's position was not inconsistent with justice. Quote, you can't have justice if the truth of marriage between one man and one woman as a cornerstone of human society is denied. But for him, advocacy for traditional marriage was grounded in the belief that marriage is a sacrament and the position was part of the larger conservative Catholic view that also opposed abortion and in vitro fertilization. Citing statistics of a nearly 50% decrease in the number of couples turning to the church for sacramental marriage, Kurtz emphasized that the defense of marriage for the church meant shifting marriage from private affair to a public good, quote, for church and society. So for him, the same-sex marriage was not the problem, it was part of a larger problem, that larger web of threats to the sanctity of marriage and life itself. So in the face of major opposition, the LGBTQ and ally community organized in Kentucky. Now they had been working on this for a couple of decades. In 1996, a group called Kentucky Fairness Alliance had sent out postcards urging their allies to oppose DOMA, and they had foreseen that same-sex marriage was going to become the hot issue. But by the summer of 2004, leadership in what had morphed into the vote no on the amendment campaign had realized that arguments based on fairness and equality and basic civil rights were going nowhere. They were losing more votes than they were winning. So looking for a winning message, they commissioned a statewide poll. And what they found in July of 2004 was that Kentucky voters, quote, expressed tolerance toward gay and lesbian residents as well as willingness to provide some rights for gay and lesbian couples and their children. Voters trended two to one toward voting in favor of the amendment However, when voters realized that the prohibition on civil unions and informal domestic arrangements might harm children, even if the voters were not comfortable with the idea of same-sex marriage or with having gay people in their neighborhood, suddenly they were less likely to vote for this. The key finding was this, that 67% of Kentucky voters believed that the real threats to marriage were quote, divorce, adultery, and domestic violence, not gay marriage. And they concluded, quote, in order to take advantage of these positive findings, it will be important to run a very focused, disciplined campaign with a fully funded communication plan to focus Kentucky voters on the consequences of the second part of the amendment. So in other words, the strategy needed to focus on the harm that voting yes on the amendment would do to straight people. And if you follow the money, you find that most of the money for, uh, for the, for the uh, Vote Yes campaign came from evangelical churches, lots of it coming from one megachurch in Louisville, almost half of the money. 
By contrast, Vote No, under the fundraising arm of Kentucky Fairness Alliance, raised money almost exclusively from small donors. The smallest donor was $3. And the new strategy is reflected that uh, reflected they wanted to emphasize that there was potential harm to families from this amendment, and the campaign they ran was a grassroots operation that used methodology that four years later would be emulated by Obama for America. They put young people out walking precincts and organizing their elders for a bottom-up attempt to build democracy. And they hit the streets in October. As the, uh, as the campaign hit its crescendo, I'll, one episode before I conclude. Um, on October 1st, um, a, a bus pulled into a shopping mall in Bowling Green, Kentucky, painted brightly, and on the side it said, Wake Up America. That, of course, is the famous phrase used by the Reverend Jerry Falwell in his 1979 speech, rallying the newly created moral majority. Passing out literature that explained how homosexuality separated families from God, he drove his bus across the state with financial backing from Dr. Frank Simon. But he appropriated the language of the civil rights movement in doing it. Quote, you have to take a little abuse if you want to change a society. Look at Dr. Martin Luther King. It was the right thing to do to stand up to segregation. For them, there was nothing less at stake than the future of the republic as they understood it and constructed it. When the campaign ended, of course, the result was a 75% victory for vote yes on election night. Conservative religious citizens and groups rejoiced. Ken Ostrander from Family Foundation proclaimed the obvious that the majority of Kentuckians did not support gay marriage and argued that this was not discrimination but salvation. Quote, everyone who had rights, benefits, or protections yesterday has them today, and I would argue that this is about a false right to redefine marriage for everyone. But organizer Kat Goodman from Vote No saw things differently and saw this as part of a larger rights-based awareness campaign in the state, pointing out that they had actually moved the needle from a 90% margin of support for the amendment to only 75%. She argued that this is the beginning of incredible change across the state, and that's what organizers do. You have to declare victory sometimes. But if for one group, this was the triumph of their theological vision, that one, marriage is between one man and one woman, in the words of the bright green yard signs that I saw all over the state, but for those who believed in the battle for fairness and civil rights, that had a future. It was now clear that like the death of Jim Crow decades before, it was going to be a long fight. Quote, while time may be on our side, if we leave these issues up to the voters uh, to overturn, there's no telling how much time this will take, said Chris Hartman of Louisville's Fairness Campaign. But far from conceding victory to the Frank Simons or Family Foundations, Hartman instead saw the empowerment of the LGBT and ally community as powerful. People are getting angrier, he said, and more and more they're taking their rights into their own hands. Hartman's belief to conclude that grassroots activists would lead and win the next phase of the battle for LGBT equality proved prophetic at least on the marriage issue. When Kentucky plaintiffs Greg Bork and Michael DeLeon stood on the steps of the United States Supreme Court on June 26, 2015, with three other victorious plaintiffs and their families in a Burgerfell versus Hodges, 
They represented the local effort to, to challenge Kentucky's marriage amendment head on. Speaking directly to the overwhelming passage of Kentucky's marriage amendment in 2004 and to the likelihood it would never have been reversed by the political process, U.S. District Judge John Hayburn held in 2014, quote, those opposed by and large simply believe that the state has a right to adopt a particular religious or traditional view of marriage, regardless of how it may affect gay and lesbian persons. But in America, as this court has respectfully explained, even sincere and long-held religious beliefs do not trump constitutional rights of those who happen to have been outvoted. But, as Kim Davis's continuing acts of massive resistance and potential amendments to Kentucky's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, four of them have been pre-filed, clearly show, the story of rights and theology in conservative-identified states is a story that is far from over. Thank you. <laughs>